is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Now, the political cycle is rolling again. It was quiet there for a little while, but we are heating right back up. There's all sorts of stuff going on, legislation going through, ministers for everything, ministers for everywhere. And we are joined by a friend of the show who was in town a little while ago, just before the election. He's back in town. He's uh, opening up a few EV charging stations. We've got them all around town, not just in Batuta Grove and not just in the French Quarter. There's some out in the ponds and out in the plains too. So it's it's very exciting. Um, we've got the Minister of Climate Change and Energy and the member for McMahon, Chris Bowen. Thanks very much for joining us once again. Good to be back in Batuta, Wendell. I saw some... Um some wind farms and new solar farms as I drove in on my EV this morning too. So Batuta is really the centre of the uh, of the climate emergencies being uh, Batuta's jobs opportunity. Really, yeah, that's it? it. That is what we are looking at it yeah. as. We're looking at it as a jobs opportunity. Clancy does want to talk to you, I believe, about um, he's got a fair bit of land on the edge of town. Right. He's looking at a solar panel farm as well. Don't see a problem. Um, Yep, yeah, so we can we can have a chat about. I think you also have a chat about that after. But anyway, we'll save that for later. But yes, as you notice, there has been a little bit of opposition to the turbines. Yeah, you, you uh, will get a bit of that. People reckon you, there's headaches and you that will sort bit of stuff. get a bit of that. But you know, um, we work those issues through. Got to bring the community with us, so you get a little it. bit of that. Um, bit of bit of that with transmission lines in particular. But that's yep. a that's a big topic in regional Australia. I know. Yes, yes. Now look, we are looking forward to talking about uh, the future, talking about the opportunities, all that sort of stuff. But what has life been like over the last couple of months? It was a long time in exile for the Labor Party. How, how's the last couple of months been? Long nine years, you know, um, but a very full-on first 100 days. Um, yep. And in my my case, we've had, you know, issues running parallel. We've had the energy crisis, literally, as we were being sworn in down a government house, you know, you wander down a government house and you do the swearing in and then the Governor-General invites you next door for a little cucumber sandwich and cup of tea. And literally my phone was sort of buzzing in my pocket while I'm having this cup of tea with the Governor-General. There's all these text messages just saying, uh, we've got a gas and energy crisis. I've literally just been sworn in like minutes before. So Coming that, in. That took a bit of management. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we've been progressing the climate agenda and getting our legislation up and notifying the UN of our new targets and designating offshore mm. wind zones and getting on with the job. So, yes, yeah, has, yeah, has, has not been a dull moment. It did look like, talking about that gas and energy crisis there, it did look like you, you know, running onto the field, Someone takes a kick off and then, you know, first or second tackle, there's just a hospital pass of, here we go, welcome welcome to first grade, welcome back yep. in the government and um, have fun with that. So I do want to talk about that, but what was election night like? What was a couple of days after? You said you hit the ground running there, but was there any time to just go, let's celebrate a little bit, let's have a couple of whiskeys, let's have a well, couple of beers? Yeah, it was actually. I was on Channel 7 on election night, I was yep. a commentator. And it became clear, I can't remember what time, but, you know, it became clear at some point we, we'd won. Not too late this not, time not around. Not too late. And I'd been a commentator on Channel 7 three years earlier with a less than ideal result mm. and a lot of the same guys were there. So in an ad break, one of the producers did um, pass me a sneaky whiskey um, just after yeah, been, yeah. it was clear we'd won and I managed to uh, 
indulge in a little uh, single malt just to savour the win. Um, oh, damn, that must have in an ad break. It, it, that, so, that tasted pretty good. It was a very long nine years, a very long last three years, mm. and a good night for Australia and obviously a good night for the Labor Party. And, you know, I, I did get a little emotional as I saw Albo claim victory. Mm. Um, it's been quite a long journey. And then... Then, you know, we hit the ground running in the sense that the Prime Minister was sworn in and the Foreign Minister and off to Tokyo, but the rest of us weren't sworn in for a week and a half or so. So there was a little bit of a chance, which is a good thing for a breather, just to think things through, plan out methodically, and we did that as well. Yeah. I did want to ask about that. Logistically, what does that look like? Like, Obviously, as you said, it's nine years, long time in exile, particularly for your portfolio. Mm. Some may argue not a lot has happened in the last nine years. There's a lot to catch up on. So how does it look in terms of going, righto, this is the job ahead of us. How do we attack it? What do we approach? Is is it you know you bringing a lot of minds together and working yeah. out just a bit of a rough plan and going righto? Let's let's start working here. Yeah, pretty much. Now, I mean, in in my space in climate change, energy, we went to the election with a pretty detailed policy, power yep. in Australia. So you know, there's all lined out. But what the listeners might be interested to know is the public service looks at particularly as an election is getting closer. They look at what the opposition's saying, and they prepare what's called an incoming minister's brief. And there's two versions. There's a red book and a blue book, they call it, in the in the slang, in the public service. And the red book is if the Labor Party wins. Yep. And so they have an incoming minister's brief ready to go. So literally you go down and get sworn in and you get back to Parliament House and there's this brief sitting on your desk. And it's the department, the public service, saying, here's your policy, here's everything you said in the election, here's how we think we can implement it, here's how we think you know, you could go about it if you chose. And here's some challenges we've identified in implementing mm. it and here's how we think we can get around those challenges. And it's a very professional operation. And then so we were swinging at, I don't know, 11 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And then we get, you know, the department comes down, the secretary, and you just go into just you know, hours of meetings and briefings and getting on top of what they've been doing and asking you questions like, mm. you promised to do this, how do you want to do that? Do you think you want to do it this way? In between that, you have a cabinet meeting and a ministry meeting and, yeah, it's akin to sipping water from a fire hose um, as it just sort of yep. all the information yep. pours out at you because it's not just the department. You know, you've got every agency, Climate Change Authority and ARENA and CFC, all, and they're all through you know, in a very brief period to brief you, for you to brief them, and off you go. Mm. Yeah, quite a bit to get on top of there. How do you philosophically approach it? Might be a bit of a tricky question, but knowing that it has been a bit of time in exile and you're coming back in and you've got ambitious plans, are you looking at a – obviously you would be looking at a long-term vision, but is it really just let's implement these policies over the next couple of years and then revisit where we're at ahead of the next election? Or is it – are you looking at let's try and play it you know, as comfortably as we can and ensure we're having a little bit longer time in government? Well, it's sort of all the above, isn't it? You've, you've always yeah. got to have it all going on, really, frankly. You've got to have the early progress, the mm. early wins. We're going to do this. And we know if, you know, we've been doing offshore wind and we've been rolling things out and making decisions. We've changed the sulfur rates in petrol. We've notified the UN of our new target, all that sort of stuff. Then you've got this sort of medium term, all right, here's a mm. whole bunch of things we promised to do in the election. We'll have to get money for those in the budget, which we will. And then once that money's in the budget, then then we can start rolling things out, like our battery plan, et cetera. And then you're talking to the department about, well, let's have a think about, you know, the next few years, we're going to have to have a 2035 target. What do we do? What do we need to be doing now to get ready for that? What's the plan for second term, the third term? You know, you've got to have that in your head mm. and you've got to be talking to your team about that now. And we are doing that because it's all important. What I do today is important. What yeah. we what we announce next week is important. But you've got to be always setting it up mm-hmm. for the country, yeah. you know, and for the government. 
to say, well, you know, this is where I want to be in 2028. You know, this is what I want. This is what I want us to have achieved. What can we put in place now in order to get us ready for 2030, etc.? And that's all happening sort of behind the scenes, a bit like a duck swimming. Yep. You know, the duck looks like it's all going on calmly beneath the water. There's all these wheels turning. That's what government's like. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just curious as well because the last couple of Labor governments, it has seemed like there have been a few hospital passes in terms of the gas crisis. We're looking at tough uh, economic times. There was a GFC with the last Labor government not long after they came in. Uh, I believe Hawke had some tough times to deal mm. with as well. How do you balance knowing you are dealing with tough times with wanting to be ambitious and do stuff and know that you know there is a public out there that are feeling the real costs of things and balancing we're not responsible for these economic conditions but we do want to try and do stuff, but we have to be responsible as well. How, how do you manage all that? I think the punters get that. I think the public gets that. Um, yeah. You know, they know that governments aren't miracle workers. They know that we've mm. taken over after nine years of less than ideal government. They know that there's international, you know, nobody's fault in Australia that Putin's invaded Ukraine, but we've mm. got to deal with it, right? Yeah. So they get that, but they want to see progress. So they don't mind us pointing out that it's the previous government's fault or it's things that aren't their fault, aren't mm. our fault, you know, like Ukraine, et cetera. They don't mind us doing that because that's, that's a statement of fact, but they also want to know what we're doing to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the balance. Yeah. And we are doing that. You know, we're getting on with it this week. We've got the Jobs and Skills Summit. That's going to be really important. Try and break down some of the tribalism mm. and arguing all the time and actually work together on you know, important national objectives uh, and just make progress. And I think, you know, early days, but I think the way the government started is, mm. you know, we, we've had a good start as we could wish for. Yeah, fair. Do you have a time frame on it? Are you like we've got till the end of the year that we can continue pointing to previous issues that we've inherited? And Oh, um, no, I think we're the, uh, look, we're the facts of the facts, you know. Just take energy very briefly. Like I, in their almost 10 years in office, mm. four gigawatts of power generation came off and one gigawatt came on. So we were three gigawatts short, which in a very simple way led to that crisis. Now that's going to take a long time to make up, right? So you can continue to point that out, but you've also got to be showing what you're doing about it. I think that's, as long as you're showing how you're dealing with it, I think you're entitled to continually, you know, say, well, all right, we didn't make this mess, but here's what we're doing to fix it. I think the public are happy with that. Fair. Now, on the gas crisis and the energy crisis that we saw a couple of months ago, and is potentially we're going to see coming up with uh, Europe going into a very cold winter and the president of Russia not particularly looking like he uh, is interested in backing down. Mm. What are the plans to combat that over the next couple of months? Because Western Australians over here in Batuta, they tend to look down their nose at us for all sorts of stuff, our sporting choices, the way we live life, all that sort of stuff, they tend to look down yeah. on us. But they're particularly looking down on us in regards to this energy crisis. Yeah. And they're saying, what energy crisis? Because you know, previously their governments made sure that there was 15% of gas reserves available at any time for the state. Um, so what They've also we... got their own grid. Yes. You know, the national energy market is actually is actually the East Coast energy market. They've got their own special little market. And if you ever suggest to them we link the markets, you'll get a very quick reply. Yes. Yeah, they do like doing their own things in the Democratic People's Republic of Western Australia. And that's fair enough. And at times like this, you can understand why. So what are we doing over here on the East Coast to uh, ensure that you know, we can have a better situation than we did a couple of months heaps, ago. Heaps, and it really is a big team effort because you're right. Like, you know, this winter is coming to a close, and we've managed to avoid mm. load shedding and blackouts. But next winter we'll be here before we know it, 
And there's also, you know, it's a different set of challenges for summer. It's a lot of solar pumping into the system in summer, but it pumps in the middle of the day and then people turn keep their air conditioner on in the evening. So we've got to, you know, keep vigilant about that. But next winter, we know, will be difficult as well. We know that we don't have yet enough gas in the system for next winter. So it really comes down to the states and the Commonwealth working very closely together, all of us on the East Coast, Labor, Liberal, even the Greens, there's a Green mm. Energy Minister in the ACT. We're all working really hard now to try and prepare for next winter. We've done things like give AEMO, the operator, more yep. powers to buy gas and store it, to work out what's happening in the market, to um, you know give them more transparency so they can see problems coming more quickly. We've uh, you know identified a lot of the powers that the states have, which people maybe hadn't been used in a long time and people have sort of forgotten, like state minister's powers to move coal around, etc. if necessary. We're working on all that and we're working on plans to sort of increase storage as quickly as we can because, you know, nobody's a bigger fan than of, of renewables than I am. Mm. I'm, I'm very keen on more renewables, uh, 82% by 2030 we want to get to and we will. But you've got to store it for the evening because they, they pump into the system during the day. The solar in particular, wind works all night, of course, despite what Peter Dutton says, he thinks the wind only works <laughs> during the day, but it actually does wind. It does get windy It doesn't shut off on day. No, no, they don't clock off at 6 o'clock in the evening, the old oh, wind turbines. Go. Amazing. The as you know, you land. That's, the as you, land. you see that. As a, those ones just outside Batuta, they're mm-hmm. working all night. But the, so, the solar, to be fair, does only work in the day. So you've got to store that energy for the evening. Uh, so we're working on plans on that. But, yeah, we're on the job, uh, but it is but it is a big challenge. That is good to hear that we're looking ahead to next year as well. We're not just looking a few months uh, in advance. In terms of the trigger, mm. that trigger, where are we at with that trigger and what are we thinking there? So this trigger that everybody talks about, it does exist, but it's not easy. It's sort of a very blunt instrument. Mm. The Minister for Resources, Madeline King, holds the trigger mm. and she's got to give like months of notice as to whether she's going to pull it. She It has to be sort of consultation under the law. And even then, it's got sort of complicated ways that it works. It's not, yep. it does, you know, she doesn't pull the trigger and all of a sudden all the gas stays in Australia. It doesn't work like that. So how does the trigger work? Well, it... it, it <laughs> Basically, she's got to give notice that uh, on the 1 January next year, yep. you know, she would require certain amounts of gas to be made available in Australia. So what we're looking at is reforming the trigger to make mm-hmm. it easier to pull and to make it more effective. So she's got that process underway. That's been underway for quite a while now. She's she's working that. It's obviously big, complicated things because. You know, we, we export a lot of gas to, to Japan, for example. Mm. You know, our gas keeps Tokyo's lights on at night. Now, we we need it keeping our lights on, but nor do we want to just, you know, wreck our, our trading relationship with Japan. So there's careful issues she's got to work through there. She's indicated that if we don't get a heads of agreement with the gas companies, then she'll pull the trigger next year. You know, mm-hmm. Heads of agreement is basically a friendly negotiation to try and sort this issue out as opposed to a... You know, we're going to pull the trigger yep. on you, which can be the more effective way. Um, but that's all That's all being worked through now. So, um, yeah, it's not like previous government left us this magic bullet, this magic trigger that you can just pull, but it is there and, you know, it may need to be used. Mm. Very clear about that with the gas companies. When any any of us ministers, whether it's Madeline or Ed Husek or I talking to gas companies, mm. we always say, we say publicly we'll use this trigger. We want to make very clear to you privately we will too if we need to, if you don't. You know, yes. You've got a social license. You don't. There's no law here which says we can tell you to do this today, but you've got a social license and we're telling you we expect you to meet that social license. Yeah, yeah. I understand that the trigger's a bit like um, those contraptions you might see in a kid's movie where someone pushes a ball and it That's rolls it. down and yeah, it tips good the analogy. over yeah. and it does all that sort That's of stuff. That's why you're a Walkley award winning yeah, journalist because well, you those word pictures, yes. Look, nominated, but they've been lost in the mail apparently. <laughs> they haven't made their way out here. But with the trigger, right, from a punter's perspective, you sit back and you look at it and go, this trigger – whether it's complicated, yeah. there's all sorts of stuff that goes on, but it ensures that gas stays in Australia and say some, you're going yeah. to Tokyo, mm. some stays in Australia. 
why not just pull the trigger? What are the main concerns to just well, not go pull the trigger now? Well, you couldn't. It couldn't. It couldn't come into force until one. Yeah, January but if we anyway. pulled it a couple. Of no, months no. Ago. Even even then, you've got long notice periods, and you've got to have the criteria got to be met. And yeah. you know, if she, if she pulls it without the criteria, then it's open to challenge, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So to be very clear, you know, we will use the trigger if we need to. Yeah. And the gas companies are very crystal clear on that. But they also know that if we pull it too early or without the right reasons, it can backfire on our on right. us as a okay. government. Right? Yep. So it's got to be very carefully worked through. Yes. Um, understand that these large corporations may not have the social license mm. and the uh, social conscience that, say, us or politicians or other people may have. So what are the negotiations with those companies to make sure that you can pull the trigger and that there's not going to be legal challenges and all that sort of stuff? Well, well you know, there's sort of – Formal heads of agreement, which are being negotiated. Then there's, you know, I, I run into gas company chief executives in my job, as you'd imagine. You know, long lunches? No, 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 no I, I don't. Do, I don't do long lunches with anyone, let alone gas, gas chief executives. I'm afraid. You know, we make it very, very clear, as I said before. You know, you've seen us see on TV. We'll use a trigger if we had to. Just making sure you understand that that's our yep. private position as yep. well. And there's more we'll need to do. And by the way, you know, and it's not an aggro conversation necessarily. It's like. You've got a social license, yeah. you know. You need community support and it's better for us and for you and for the country and for everyone if you're just mm. if you're just doing the right thing and we don't have to talk about this trigger and we don't have to um, make those sort of decisions. They get that by and large. So we'll just keep having that conversation. We've managed to keep the lights on collectively, not not just, you know, not me, but collectively the system, AEMO and the operators and the states and everybody working together. We've managed to keep the lights on this winter. It was a close run thing, a yep. few instances. We'll just keep working on it for next winter as well. There you go. Now, I saw an article yesterday, it was, from noted scholar and um, former Cardinal Pell apologist Andrew Bolt. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. He, he's come out and he said, Chris Bowen's green dreams don't pass the IKEA test. I'm not really sure what the IKEA Me either, mate. I read it too. Is. He also called me shiny-eyed and I wasn't really sure what he meant, but I didn't take it as a compliment. Yeah, I, no. I, I didn't. There's a lot of stuff I don't quite understand in <laughs> here. I also, I don't have that much trouble assembling IKEA either. No, I mean, like, I, I've, I've had to do my fair share of flat packs, as mm. you know, most Aussies have, and yeah, I wouldn't put IKEA at the top of the list of complexity. No. Freedom, yeah. free, freedom Furniture, on the other hand, I mean, they've they got some real tricky about this. Yeah, there can be tricky stuff, particularly if you're getting vague instructions or not oh, a lot the, of instructions. That can be very and difficult. And the instructions aren't, you know, very clear. You know, the real pain is when you get like 90% of the way there and then you realise you put that bolt in the wrong place like seven moves ago and you've mm. got to undo it all. That's a real pain. Yeah. We've all been there, I'm yes. sure. Anyway, I think, you know, it's the wonderful world of Andrew Bolt columns. Yeah, he, yeah, he seems to think that, well, I mean, there's a, Revelation, Andrew Bolt doesn't really believe in climate change. So he hates everything to do with action on climate change and he thinks, therefore, I'm doing a pretty awful job. So I will take that as a pretty big compliment. There you go. On Andrew Bolt and some of the more mainstream media in general, obviously there has been a pretty consistent dragging of the chain on their part. I want to know what you think are the major reasons behind the climate wars that we've seen for the last 10 years? I mean, people are saying now the climate wars are pretty much over, but we have seen climate wars. What do you think the main causes for the climate wars were? I think, Wendell, that our opponents, political opponents, saw it as a way to win elections. Mm -hmm. That's the first point. And for a while they were right. You know, They managed to run this really simple lie, and a simple lie is always easier in politics than a complicated truth, right? That action on climate change will cost you your job. Mm-hmm. 
They ran that for years and it won them elections. And they ran it particularly strongly in 2019 and it played a big role in them winning that election. Uh, and that change, you know, change is coming and it's not good for you. And it's always easier to warn against change than advocate for change in politics. So they did that. Then you've got, you know, News Limited and a whole bunch of other groups which, you know, also participated in that for a long time because that was part of the political play. And, and for a while it was, you know, the science was always settled, but, you know, perhaps complicated and mm. difficult to, to run. And now climate change is not a prediction. Climate change is now a lived reality. We are yes. currently living climate change. So that has made it easier for those of us who are advocating action to say, this is happening today. Here are the following examples of things, you know, whether it's droughts, bushfires, et cetera, which are worse and more frequent. I'm not saying they wouldn't happen without climate change, but they are worse and more frequent, including floods, by the way. People say, oh, some you know, the deniers are out there saying, oh, floods, it's rain, it's not. Yes, the hotter it is, the more, <laughs> the more, more moisture is in the air, the more regularly floods will occur and the worse they'll be. Mm. So I think we've reached that tipping point. And also our job, as I think we talked about last time I was in, our job has been to point out that, of course, action on climate change is an obligation to the rest of the world and future generations. Of course it is. But even if it wasn't, it's good for our country to do it, right? Mm. Even if no other country, people say, oh, China's not doing enough and, you know, et cetera, and, and there's a valid conversation about all that. But even if no other country was doing anything, it would still be in our economic best interest to create these jobs like you see in all the work going on in the Diamantina Valley, you know, and right around regional Australia and the renewable energy uh, transformation. It would still be in our national interest to do this. And that was the key task for us in the election, and I think we did you know, a relatively okay job at doing that to make that case that mm. action on climate change is good for the economy and, and you know, the election in which we could do that is the election in which we could win. And then we've managed to bring the business community with us, which is very important because people at home, you know, they're not thinking about these issues every day all day, but they think, well, if the business community's on board. You know, they're the ones who create the jobs. That sounds pretty reasonable. So you've got, you know, the Business Council backing the government's policy, Australian Industry Group, National Farmers Federation, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, as well as all the climate groups and the Smart Energy Council, the Clean Energy Council. So that's sort of a very broad coalition of people yep. who don't agree about much and the ACTU as well. So that sort of, I think, helped us win those arguments. So that's how I reckon the climate change, the climate wars have come about and how we've been able to get them into retreat. We haven't gotten rid of him yet, but they're in retreat. Yeah. And apologies if I sound a bit Joe Rogany here, but talking about those I things- I thought we weren't talking about vaccines. Well, well, okay. we will, I'll steer clear of vaccines, but I'll go a bit Joe Rogan okay. on something else here. Talking about all of those things and the fact that the business community is finally on board, we're seeing BHP rolling out TV ads, talking about a green future and all that sort of stuff. And 10 to 15 years ago, to a lot of people and to experts, it was very clear that climate change was happening. And over the next couple of years, we saw people advocating economic opportunities, which is the big thing for a country like us. There's huge economic opportunity here for us long term. Was there, in terms of the climate wars, do you think there was a lot going on to drag the chain from basically the likes of BHP and huge companies and huge individuals who had large interests in fossil fuels to basically drag the chain for long enough to allow them to divest and to cash in on the economic opportunities and the opportunities of the future. And when mm. that was slowly on the move, there was then what we saw over the last six months to 12 months, the widespread acknowledgement that yes, there is an economic opportunity here and this is the way forward for us with BHP and with yeah. Twiggy Forrest and his green hydrogen. Yeah. Look, every company is different, right? Mm. And what their motives were in every instance I wouldn't pass judgment on. But fundamentally, you are correct, I think, Wendell, in that a lot of companies that were traditionally fossil fuel companies are to some degree, you know, or other, like every company's different, but on a journey to 
realizing that actually we're energy companies, right? Mm. So we just got to make energy. If it's not fossil fuels, it'll be something else. It'll be renewable. And increasingly, those firms have made come to that realization, which they hadn't made ten or fifteen years ago. And now they are doing that. Yes, some are better than others, and uh, and I don't like greenwashing. You know, I look at any claims very carefully. You know, just buying one wind farm does not make you a renewable <laughs> energy company if you are a very big fossil fuel provider. But you know, credits where it's due if they're making a transition. And I want again, people say, oh, you shouldn't be talking to fossil fuel companies. Well, they're the biggest emitters, and I want emissions down. So I will talk to fossil fuel companies about getting their emissions down, about making the transition because we. We've all got to be in it, right? Mm. A government that gets it is the first step, but that's nowhere near enough. We need companies that get it. We need state governments that get it. We need communities. This is, this is not just a whole of government effort. It's a whole of government's effort. It's a whole of economy effort. It's a whole of society effort because this is a very big job. Uh, and, you know, where energy companies can play a role, they need to, and I'm very clear with them about that. And, you know, mm. again, it's a bit like that famous economic example, business example of Kodak that thought they were a camera and, and film company, right? They weren't. They're an image company. If they'd known they were an image company, they might have survived by thinking, well, how do people kind of capture their images in yeah. this new world? They didn't, and then they no longer exist. If you think you're a fossil fuel company and not an energy company, that's a wrong call. Yeah, it's um, and just what you're saying there about people telling you, you know, don't go and have conversations with uh, coal lobbyists and fossil fuels companies. It's not a conversation at the pub that you're trying to avoid this bloke. It's, you know, you need to actually go and sit yeah. with these people and work out what the plans are for the future. I wanted to know what has been the hardest sell or what do you guys see as the hardest sell in terms of really important renewable technologies? For example, EVs, electric mm. vehicles. There's all the chat about ruining the weekend mm. um, from the previous government and that stuff. It was, yeah. No, I don't think that people now want EVs. Like if an EV, new mm. EV comes on sale in Australia, it literally sells. This is no joke. literally sells in seconds. Yes. Like you've got to be on the website, click and refresh, to get a chance of a new EV. Like, this is not a demand problem anymore, right? Mm. People get it. <laughs> yeah. I drive an EV. I haven't been to a service station in, you know, in eight months. You know, I keep an eye on the petrol price because it concerns me, but it's good economics as well as yes. good for the planet to drive an EV. So I don't think that's any longer. Yes, you still got the, the deniers out there. And again, there's been a fair bit of news limited action about that. You know, these columns saying, oh, Bowen hasn't thought this through. We don't have enough charges. Of course we don't have enough charges. That's the <laughs> Because we point. haven't built any for <laughs> the last ten years. Yes, That's so we need we to don't. build a lot more. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, guess what? We didn't have enough petrol stations when old Henry Ford was inventing the Model T either. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've got to get on with it. I think the biggest, hardest sell has been and will increasingly be. This is going to sound a bit nerdy, right? But it's very important, particularly for listeners in regional Australia. Transmission lines. Not very sexy, but very important because mm. we, we've got to get the energy around the country a lot yep. more efficiently. We've got to build 10,000 kilometres of these things and a lot of them will go through regional Australia, very beautiful parts of Australia right, where mm. communities will very rightly say we want to be consulted about how this happens and it hasn't happened well enough up until now. You know, you get a flyer saying we've got a transmission line coming over your property and you go, what the actual? Mm. Um, and that hasn't been worked through. Now, I'm very confident we can work it through with communities. We've got to talk to farmers about how they get compensated. We've got to talk to communities about better consultation about where they go. But we need the lines. We need mm. to get on with it, right? So I want to bring communities with us on that journey. And that's a tough sell to say, because, you know, we need these lines because often these communities say, yeah, I completely get this is in the best interest of my country. This is not in the best interest of my community. Yeah. Right? And I get that. <laughs> I get that because I go to these places. I meet with these farmers in these communities and it's a very beautiful country, right? And you wouldn't, if you had a choice, say, well, I know what would really improve this block of land. 
big transmission line, right? But we've got to get it done. Yeah. So they tell you the bloke next door is pretty keen. Go and have a chat to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, some 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 landowners are really up for it, right? Because yeah. if you get the compensation yes. mechanism, right? So you got to work that through. I might have a chat to Clancy about that too. When he gets, yeah, yeah. When anything. He gets I think he's up for anything. He's up um, for anything on his land. Yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. And he's well, got a bit of it, so it should I, be all right. I reckon we might be able to do some business. <laughs> um, I did want to ask about the language and the terminology and all that sort of stuff. There was a video that went round probably. I don't know, maybe six months ago on social media with the, I think it was the coal miners getting in the Tesla and going, oh, yeah, oh they're great. fuck me, <laughs> you know, and that that kind of stuff, that evokes emotion and people can relate to that and they can see that. But you're talking about transmission lines and all these different technologies and terminologies, which some people might just go, oh, boring, or, mm. you know, they might tune out. So how hard is it and how hard do you have to work on selling those points and trying to convey the points in the language that sometimes you can you might see people just going, it's a big part of my job, to be honest, mm. and I'm constantly thinking about, well, how do I take this thing, which is really quite complicated, and try and make it simple when I'm explaining it. It's a big part of my job, and you know, think about how I can explain it best to the Australian people, and get their support for it. So, take this for example. You know, I think I'm, I, I mentioned before. You know how renewables are great. I love them, but you've got to store it. Yeah. So I've got this little line that I use in my quite a lot of my speeches and interviews where I say. You know, people say, oh, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, and that's true. But the rain doesn't always fall either, but we all drink water every day because mm. we store the water, so we've got to store renewable energy. So you've got to think about those sort of word pictures to explain it. Another one is that people say, like on the other side of the argument, people say, oh, 43% by 2030, that's bullshit, that's not enough, you know, et cetera. And I say, well, you do know that 2030 is 89 months away. That's mm. not long to get this job done, right? Actually, as of this week, it's 88 months away. Right? So that's not long for this big change. So if you want to try and do 50 or 75, I mean, we've left it pretty late. There's 88 months to get this job done. So you've got to think of ways to make those arguments and explain things, which are very complicated. And, you know, I'm not, I'm no electrical engineer. Mm. You know, I, I sit there and get briefed and ask my departmental officials sometimes to repeat it. <laughs> so I make sure I understand. I read my briefs seven or eight times to make sure I'm clear on it. And then I think, okay, well, how am I going to explain this? Mm. Like, you've got to try and... Yeah, you know, really get it down to simple English, yeah. Yeah, do you have, say, mates from home or mates from school from, you know, Smithfield, Wetherill Park, that yeah. kind of area? Do you, Are you bouncing ideas off them yeah. or bouncing pictures off them? You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, I, work, I test things, yeah, with my mates sometimes, absolutely. Yeah. Just, they don't and know I'm doing And if you can see it. the eyes just roll yeah, back. Yeah, they don't know I'm like, doing it. I just try, try a line at a barbecue one. and, yeah. you know, you see their eyes light up, you go, okay, that one okay. works. And try it on my kids. Keep too, an eye out for tomorrow's news conference. Yeah, yeah. I try some lines on my kids too. They're teenagers and, you know, you've got to, Young people, very mm. engaged in climate change, but also, you know, you've got to talk to them about it. So I try some lines on that. They go, yeah, Dad, that's don't, never say that again. Or also <laughs> brutally honest. Brutally Kids honest. Kids and teenagers brutally are brutally honest. honest. Yes. That's fair enough. I was curious about we have things like Snowy Hydro and, as we said, we have huge economic opportunities going forward. Is something that you're considering being larger government investment in various creating corporations or creating bodies mm. to basically ensure that there is government-owned and government-run renewable technologies and renewable energy sources? We don't we don't need to do so much of that because the private sector is getting on with it, right? Yep. So the private sector knows how to build renewable energy now. And Australian households know how to build renewable energy. One in four Australian houses has a solar panel on the roof. That's the world's record. And more and more, you know, mm. and we're going to need more and more. So I don't think we need to do that so much. We've got some. We've got ARENA and CEFC, yep. who are both government organisations that invest in green energy in their own way. That's important. I'm a big supporter of them. They're coming up to 10-year anniversaries and yep. they've been really important. 
the Labor Party created them. And we need to do some more of that. We've got money we're going to invest in transmission lines. That's government investment equity. We're taking yep. you know, shares. Um, so we need to do some of that. And we need to support some storage you know, in various ways of that renewable energy. But really the main thing is to get the policy settings right and the certainty right so the private sector can invest in it. Mm -hmm. from around the world there's a lot of capital out there around the world waiting to invest in mm -hmm. renewable energy and looking at the best countries and australia's been basically saying bugger off to that all that investment and capital right and you know if you you're sitting in a boardroom in new york and you're thinking well i can spend a billion dollars in australia i can spend it in canada who's got the best policy settings who's got the most stable you know australia hasn't been turning up mm. and that has changed yep uh, and will continue to change, and that's actually the more important side of it. Now, Clancy is knocking on the glass, so I'll mm. just get through my last couple of quick questions. Yeah, he's, he's got a piece of paper there with with map of solar panels. I on think his he land heard the transmission some, lines and as he's well. Holding a pen that's and got a contract. And, he'll, yeah. be, he'll be talking to the advocates, accountant, and um, business people to sort yeah, that out. Yeah. But where are we at in terms of new coal and fossil fuel projects? Uh, every week there seems to be a bit here, a bit there, back and forth. Stuff's happening. Stuff's not happening. We're open to it. Where are we at with well, new projects? Well, I mean, you know, often this, this debate sort of gets down to very simple, you know, new coal and gas. And I get that. And again, as we talked about in politics, you've got to try and make things simple, right? But not everything's the same. There's not going to be any new coal-fired power stations in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's just not going to happen. But we are going to need to get coal to the existing coal-fired power stations for as long as we need to. There's going to be gas in the system for a long time, you know, because a virtue of gas-fired power, it's not low emissions, but you can turn it on and off really quickly, right? Unlike coal. Mm -hmm which is very important. It means you're not burning fossil fuels unnecessarily when you don't need it. You can turn a gas-fired power station on and off in 15 minutes. But we've got to keep the gas coming to those gas-fired power stations as we're, as we're making that transition to renewables and storage. And that's really important because if we if we do start getting blackouts, then we'll lose the public. Yep. You know? we'll, we'll lose public support for this big transition that's underway. So everything's got to stack up. You know, The Greens say, oh, there's 114 projects that Labor's approved. That's just not true, right? We haven't approved any of that. That's just a list of projects that companies might choose to come forward with at some time. Then they've got to go through approvals, right? Tanya Plibersek's already in the process of knocking back a coal mine. First time a coal mine's been knocked back under environmental approval in Australian history, right? She's got important reasons for doing that under mm -hmm. the, her laws, but then there's a process. They've got to get financing, right? That's increasingly hard. Banks are increasingly looking at fossil fuel projects and saying, no, that's not for me, right? That's not... Big inner city lefties, those um, those <laughs> giant banks, you well, know what I mean? A lot of blue hair, a lot of uh, progressive views. Yeah, yeah exactly. famous for it. So now having said that, you know, is it a good idea to say, well, there are no circumstances in which we're going to get gas out of this particular field to fire that gas-fired power station? No, that's not mm. a good idea, but there's got to be very rigorous checks. Yep. And that's, that's our approach. Fair. You just mentioned the Greens there. How has it been uh, working with the Greens and the Teals over the last couple of months? Yeah, look, you know, we'll work together where we can. Where with they, I said at the outset with our climate bill in the House of Representatives, for example, so I don't need your votes, but, you know, I want to work with you. If you've got sensible suggestions, yep. um, which are in keeping with our approach, then I'm all ears. And they made some and I accepted them, yep. you know, and that worked well. And that worked well. And likewise in the Senate, there are things that the Greens and I, you know, very strongly disagree on, but- where we can work together to get things done, we will. And Adam Bant and I did. Yep. And, you know, there were negotiations and what we said publicly and what we said privately were the same, you know, but also we were able to talk issues through 
you know, in our offices and say, well, look, I think I can live with this, but I can't live with that. You know, mm. and that's how that's how any good negotiation works. And that's in the best interest of the country. There you go. Now, one last question. Anthony Albanese, he's been, been running the show for the last couple of months. Any signs he has made himself the Minister no. for Climate Change or Energy behind no, closed no, doors, no, anything no, like that? No signs of that. And I'm pretty no sure... No little, little notes there or anything? No, no pretty sure he won't be. He's... Uh, <laughs> He trusts his ministers to do our job. He doesn't need to swear himself in to find out what's going on. Uh, so that's a very good thing. There's one minister for climate change and energy in Australia, and there's that's me and, you know, you know the entire ministry. That's all them, and that's us doing our job. The prime minister checks in on us and makes sure we're doing that job. That's his job, and that's right, um, but he lets us do the job, and I'm quite confident I can say never will, uh, <laughs> secretly swearing himself, swear himself into our roles. Well, Minister Bowen, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for making the trip out here to Batuta. Oh, um, always a I'll pleasure. Leave you, I'll leave you to Clancy now and um, we'll talk to you I might need soon. to get my lawyers in, I think. He's yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. keen to do a deal. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much, Chris. Good Cheers. on you, mate. Bye. Good on you.